So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, here we are cruising into the summer of 2021. Uh, my name's Nate. I'm here with my good pal, David. Uh, and David, you are looking, it looks like you, you caught a little bit of sun. How'd you do that? Well, I was outside a little bit. It's funny, you know, I'm actually <laughs> feeling like emerging from my cave and I'm starting to make, okay. uh, you know, better uh, health decisions. And, um, I've been, uh, trying to lose a little bit of weight and get a little more outside and all that stuff, no, nice. you know, nothing like a, a heart procedure to jolt you into, you know, reality. But, uh, yeah, here's a, here's oh. a thing though, you know, um, we're, we're going to be talking today about choices and we gotta, we've got a guest that I, I'm, I mean, I'm so excited. She's like, uh, she, you know, she's been interviewed by Oprah. I mean, this okay. we we got a heavy hitter today, but she's going to be talking about the way we make choices. And mm-hmm. I uh, here's a choice thing: I got an air fryer, okay, <laughs> so okay. that I can make okay. better food choices. And I'm going to tell you what: mm-hmm. this thing, if you don't have an air fryer, you are missing something because oh, it's yeah. healthy. You don't have to use the oil and the fat and the, you know, everything that we do to make things, yeah. you know, really good, but it makes food really, um, uh, tasty and, and, and healthy. And you can I, still get to crispy and crunchy. You huh? still get your crispy yeah. crunchy. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. we've done, gosh, you know, chicken thighs, salmon, tilapia, yeah. um, vegetables. I mean, like yeah. roasted potatoes, the, the potatoes that come out of that thing, uh, like French fried stuff, you know, you don't uh-huh. have the deep oil stuff, but you got the good crunch on it still. Uh huh. Um, yeah. Anyway, I know I'm going on about a really mundane thing, but I am I am stoked because it's making uh, it's making bed making better decisions easier for me, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. Uh, you know I'm not I'm not sacrificing. So anyway, I'm really excited about my air fryer, and actually it was a gift from my parents. They they thought you know now that I've had this terrible thing uh, that they should help me be healthy. So. <laughs> Oh, that's great. That's yeah. Great. You know, I I, I I had some good experience with positive choices this last week. I took a I took a trip, uh, flew to Pennsylvania and then drove from Pennsylvania up to northern New York. Yeah. And visited family. Uh, you know, travel has been a trigger for me with drinking. And that's my my current uh, what I'm focused right now is mm-hmm. alcohol. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it has in the past you know, the vacation rules take over the minute I get to the airport. Right. 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 Uh, and it's and just kind of automatic. We, you know, all, all bets are off and, you know, it, it, in the past, it has been difficult for me to pass a bar in an airport. 
mm. without so-called treating myself to a beer before I got on the plane. Sure. And, and then that kind of sets up drinking for the trip. So in the past, I have managed to stay away from the alcohol for a while up until trip time. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so nice this time, first of all, to have pre-made my choices. Right. Uh, and not, not hopes and dreams, but to pre-make choices and mm-hmm. uh, also to engage in some counter-programming before I get to the airport. And, uh, man, I, I just felt so good to come home from a five-day trip uh, past a lot of places where I would have uh, opted for a drink in the past. I even went to dinner at a brewery with some friends and had a grand time mm-hmm. uh, and settled for a Diet Coke. It was just fine. There you go. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. Well, good deal. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy with you. Hey, uh, congrats on getting us this guest. It isn't often that, you know, we have a Harvard professor, you know, a YouTube, uh, you know, a, a, a TEDx star, really a five. We have great guests, but not many who have received the recognition that this guest has. Yes. Or can take us as deep and as far as she can. Yeah. Uh, listeners, uh, if you're doing something else that's going to distract you, uh, either stop doing that or stop the podcast and wait until you can give it your full uh, attention because you're not, this is not something you want to listen to with half a brain. <laughs> this, right? right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but well worth the next uh, 30, 40 minutes of your time. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Uh, David, I am so excited about the guest that you have managed to corral for this week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. T- uh, tell us about Dr. Jill. Well, our guest, Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor, um, is an author. Uh, she comes to us um, from parts unknown today (laughs) on a vacation or something that resembles it, uh, a a very secluded life. And, uh, but she's written an incredible book. Actually, she's written a couple of incredible books, uh, but you may know her from her Ted talk. Uh, she experienced a stroke in, I believe 1996. And she wrote about that in her first book. And we're going to ask her, of course, to tell us about that. And rather than me go through all of her, um, her extensive bio, she, she has been interviewed by Oprah, I believe. And she's got this TED talk that was the first TED talk to really go viral. And now I think about 26 million people or something have seen her TED talk about her experience as a neuroscientist, but as a, as a person surviving uh, a terrible uh, stroke. A uh, very debilitating stroke, and her book is called uh, their current book, "The Whole Brain Living: uh, The Anatomy of Choice and the Four Characters That Drive Our Life." And um, she's got some great insights. So, uh, rather than me ramble about uh, Dr. Jill, uh, Dr. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. I'm so happy to be with you. Well, thank you for making time. You are a heavy hitter <laughs> in this whole area of uh, understanding what's going on in our brains and the anatomy of um, our decision making and all of that. Yes. But it came 
um, at a pretty significant price, it sounds like, uh, when you experienced your um, your stroke. Yes, it, it was, uh, you know, I was teaching and performing research into the brain uh, at Harvard, and I was fascinated with how does our brain create our perception of reality? And because I grew up with a brother diagnosed with schizophrenia, so I knew I was really clear that two people can have the exact same experience, but walk away with completely different interpretations of what just happened. So Mm -hmm. I was fascinated with this brain. And then I woke up one morning and over the course of four hours, I watched my own brain completely deteriorate in its ability to process information. So um, I ended up having a major hemorrhage and it, uh, it took eight years. Uh, on, the, on the afternoon of that stroke, I could not walk, talk, read, write, or recall any of my life. So that was certainly the price that I paid. But mm. over eight years, I was able to use what I still had left to rebuild the left hemisphere abilities so that I could communicate again. What did that feel like? I mean, that, I know this sounds like such a ignorant question, but what did that feel like not to be able to recall what every day we take for granted? It, it was actually bl- a blissful euphoria. <laughs> 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 I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, imagine what it would feel like to not have any recollection of any of the pain from your past. I mean, yeah. alone, that alone is like freedom. You know, it's like, yeah. if I'm not hooked into my past pain, then I'm in the present moment. And the beauty of the present moment is none of that exists in the here and now. None of that is in the consciousness of the present moment. And also Mm. the left hemisphere, which I lost, which was my past and my future. So it's not just the emotions, but I lost Mm. all my education, which meant I lost my job and any tension related to that. I lost my relationships and anything that related to that. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was very freeing. Um, at the same time, that's great, but it's a completely non-functional way of living our lives as a human being in society. Oh yeah. Wow. Man. Wow. wow. <laughs> so, uh, what was the, what was the process of, uh, retraining, rebuilding, uh, yeah. And recreating a life. How did that go? You know, I I am a trained neuroanatomist, so I think of the brain through the lens of cells. And Mm -hmm. every ability we have, we have because we have cells that are performing that function. So every emotion that we experience, that's cells running in a specific circuit. So if I'm feeling sadness or I'm feeling Mm -hmm. jealousy or I'm feeling rage, the that's because there are cells inside the brain designed to perform that function. Um, if I remember your name, it's because I have cells in that left brain that perform that function. So mm-hmm. as, as, so on the morning of the stroke over the course of four hours, I didn't lose my whole brain. I lost my left hemisphere. And so that's where all right. the details and details about life and my interaction with the external world 
are located. So for four hours, I got to watch my circuitry go offline, circuit by circuit, ability by ability, until I simply didn't have that anymore. And all I had was the blissful euphoria of the experience of the present moment. So it was actually mm. a very pleasant experience. But sure, in order sure. to be in order to be a functional human being, I had to rebuild each of those circuits. So for me, yeah. it was it wasn't just getting back an ability, it was rebuilding a pathway to a circuit and then rebuilding the circuit and then rebuilding the next level of circuitry, et cetera, et cetera. So, so for me, it was a very uh, structured um, uh, endeavor in order to regain all of those abilities. Did the memory eventually return? Did some of the memory uh, return to you? Some of the memories uh, did return after eight years. I realized that I don't think anybody ever retaught me that piece of my past because nobody really knew that but me. Mm -hmm. um, but it was in the beginning for the first eight years, it pretty much was all I had was what I uh, what I, my mother actually came into my world again and took over. I had become an infant again. And mm -hmm. so she would introduce me to parts of my life. And, and I had a music room and I know you're a, you're a music man. And of course you're mm -hmm. in Nashville, which is music territory. And I had been a singer songwriter. And so I had uh, a cello, I had a guitar, I had a music room for, you know, recording back in the, the 80s and 90s for fun with multi-tracking. And it was all laid out because I would always go into that room and play. And wow. so my mother took me into that room and she, she had me hold those instruments and just pluck those strings in order to rebuild circuitry. And then it was like a file would open and then I would have a bit of that new information. Uh, so I had to slowly piece by piece myself back together again. That's incredible. Um, that, that is just amazing. As a, as a, as a, a neuroanatomist or a neuroscientist where you were, had this inside, uh, seat <laughs> to what, um, was going on, but you didn't have the uh, the background anymore to interpret it. Is, would that be true? Well, what I didn't have was the details of my academics, but I was a gross anatomist, a body cadaver lab anatomist. So I'd had 13 years of cada teaching cadaver lab uh, to, at a medical mm. school to medical students. So I could have sculpted for you an entire abdomen, but I could mm -hmm. not have named because of the left brain, the different, the different parts of the stomach, for example. So I had the three dimensional spatial understanding, which meant I could relearn a whole lot very quickly because all I really lost was that template of language on top of what I did retain, which was the visual and spatial understanding of the body and of the brain. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. One of the reasons that I find this really fascinating is I have a brother who works with me and for me, uh, who had a stroke a few years ago, which resulted in aphasia, uh, where he lost language had to, and had to teach himself once again, how to talk. What surprised him was how, uh, how words, words themselves had structured reality for him. And the loss of words 
somehow complicated his ability to grasp and communicate reality itself. Does that make, I, I, I think I'm describing it the way he described it, but does that resonate at all with your experience? It does. You know, we think of language as just this thing that we use in order to communicate, but words are mm-hmm. an abstract sound. So if I say dog, dog, dog is just a sound, but you hear mm-hmm. dog, part of your brain can create the sound dog. And then that abstract sound dog, which really means nothing in, you know, other mm-hmm. than it's a sound, then your brain attaches meaning to that abstract sound. And your right hemisphere is going to flash into your mind pictures of dogs that you have known, while your left hemisphere is going to perhaps flash the letters D-O-G, because the other Mm -hmm. part of language is the written language of vocabulary. So we have these two hemispheres working together in the form of communication. But when you even think about numbers, a a number is a symbol, which has no meaning whatsoever until other parts of our brain decide it has a specific meaning. You agree on the meaning so that then we can communicate communicate and we know what a one actually is. Wow. Wow. Yeah. My well, brother described this when he, he talked about having conversations and when it, it was, he, he couldn't hold a conversation in the early stages of his recovery. He said that what he would do eventually was he had a mental blackboard. If he wanted to say something, he would write it on the mental blackboard and then read it. Interesting. Ah, it's, I just find it's it amazing. Just so fascinating. Yeah. yeah it's amazing. Yeah. It, you know, the brain is, we take this beautiful organ so for granted. And mm. it is just these beautiful little creatures, these cells, these neurons communicating with one another in circuits in order for us to have the experience of our life. And so my whole focus has been to help people really gain a value of this beautiful organ inside of our head. And how do we protect it? Because neurons are little living creatures. And if we kill them, then we have fewer to work with. And we do, we can Mm. grow some new neurons in certain cases of trauma. Uh, But it's, it, once we, you know, it just, thinking about this magnificent organ and how do we protect these cells so that we can then perform their function and let them perform their functions. Mm. Mm. Well, here's what I, I love about the concept of whole brain living, uh, your book. And um, again, the book, whole brain living, the anatomy of choice and the four characters that drive our life. Um, the anatomy of choice is a really interesting thing to me because in recovery, we always hear people refer to, especially in meetings, 12 step meetings, things like that. Um, whether it's, you know, substance issues or process addictions or whatever they are, we always talk about the committee in our head. You know, we always talk about, you know, well, the committee in my head met and it decided it would be a good idea to drink again, you know, and that kind of thing. And so what I love about this book idea and this concept is that uh, for many, many areas of life, you've put anatomy to it. And yes. and one of the things I feel like we've lacked over the years, and, and I'm not... Um, 
anti-12-step at all. But I think that one of the things that we've lacked is, is bringing in more clinical understanding of the brain and what is actually happening to us. Because there is physiology, and you're pointing that out really really clearly. And I love the part of the chapter, and I'll, I'll quit talking here in a second, but I love the part in the chapter about addiction where you took the 12 steps and you applied the characters in a conversation that I, as a person uh, that had the, that conversation many, many times with myself, um, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do this, but I'm going to only do. And then I had the shame cycle and the regret. And then the other part of my brain took over and said, okay, you'll be functional today. You're going to be fine until I go back and do the thing I do. And right. so you've put these characters in place that have this conversation in our brain that if I'm not mistaken, explains the committee concept a little bit better. Yes, I think that's you're exactly right, um, because we do. We all know that we have these different parts of ourselves that have different values, have different interests, and have different drives. And the, the way that I came to these four characters that I talk about in the book for whole brain living is when I lost my left hemisphere, I lost the emotion from the past and the future, and I lost the thinking from the past and the future. And the left hemisphere has a group of cells in it that says, um, these are the boundaries of where I begin and end. So I become defined as a holographic image of myself. And mm -hmm. that's me, the individual. Well, if I don't have those cells in that left hemisphere, then I don't have the perception of myself as me, Jill Bolte-Taylor, the individual. Here's my name. Here's my address. Here's my phone number and all the data that has anything to do with me, the individual. And as I lost that left hemisphere and I lost that individualization of that, that holographic image, I became atoms and molecules literally as big as the universe because that's all I am truly as a living being. I'm this magnificent collection of 50 trillion molecular geniuses and I have to have that little group of cells in the left brain saying me, I am, I have a past, I have a future because the past is not real. The past is a time that has come and gone. All that we have truly is the present moment. And that's the consciousness of that right hemisphere. But that's a completely non-functional state of being. We have to have the left brain. I have to become an individual so that I can develop my skill sets so I can define what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. I fit into the societal norm uh, and, and I fit in as a member member of society. So what happens as you're speaking about the committee is absolutely correct. I call it the brain team because we mm -hmm. have these four characters and they're all there. They all have <laughs> their own value structure and their own interests. And when I decide that I'm going to attend to my addiction and I'm going to engage in whatever that addiction is, that's a part of me that is speaking louder than the other parts of me. So in this book, the design is to help people get to know all four of their characters so that and what they value so that they can exercise all four of their characters. And then when they're having that conversation, that one character that really wants to dig into the craving and dig into the addiction 
doesn't have, doesn't one feel alone and isolated and like it's the only one. It's like, no, I'm a part of a band here. I'm not just a soloist. And I've got, mm-hmm. I can rely on my band members to pull in and make more broad my sound so that I can make better choices. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, for the sake of, of, of those of us who are completely naive about this topic, can you now kind of flesh out for us the four characters? Describe the band. The band. So we have we have a, a spinal cord. We know that at the top of the spinal cord, mm-hmm. we have a brain stem, and mm-hmm. that is essentially known as the reptilian brain. And then right. over time, the the new tissue gets added on top of that, and that creates the limbic or emotional systems. And that's the difference between a reptile and a mammal. And it's bilateral emotional tissue on each side. And and some of the groups of cells are the amygdala, the hippocampus, and the anterior cingulate gyrus. And it's bilateral. So we have two amygdala, two hippocampi, and two anterior cingulate gyri. And then over time, the human comes in and new tissue gets added on top of that emotional tissue. And this is now the thinking tissue. So we humans have two emotional groups of cells to, uh, and each of them exhibit very specific job functions. And then on top of that, we have two thinking modules of cells. So as what I did was I lost my left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere, the primary difference between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere is that the right hemisphere is right here, right now. So it's going to be the emotions of the present moment. And what do I think and experience in the present moment? While the left hemisphere is going to have the emotions of our past and our future, as well as our thinking of a past and a future, and as it relates to the external world. So when I talk about the four characters and the power of choice, it's these four characters, our left thinking brain, which interacts with the external world, our left emotion, which is our pain from the past and our fear of the future, our right emotion, which is the experience of the present moment, and then our right thinking, which is, remember, not related to me, the individual, because that's in my left brain. So that's the part of my connection to an infinite being or a a higher level of consciousness that permeates everything. So we have these four different groups of cells that result in four different uh, subtypes of care of, of abilities and they each have their own personality and we can get to know all four of them very easily. Is it wow. fair to say, Dr. Jill, that, uh, that, that therefore we could have four different perceptions of a, of an experience? Absolutely. That is absolutely correct because each of these four different characters has a different value. Um, so the basic difference in the value is the emotions. Well, let's go through the four characters. 
Okay, start with mm-hmm. number one and move through them. And yeah. um, and then you'll see how they different value and what they care about and what they do. And that way, then we can get to know that part of myself. Oh, yeah, I know that part of myself. And I know that part of myself. And yeah, I know all these parts of myself. And then we can apply it specifically to the craving desires of that little character, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So character one is left thinking. And this is our language. So our ability to communicate with one another, there's that group of cells that defines me, the individual. So everything coming in through my sensory systems comes in about me, me, me and mine. So I build and construct a value system based on me and mine, and I'm related to the external world. So this is character one. It's going to define what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad. And it's going to be the controller. It likes to create order and organize people, places, and things, including time. So we all know this part of ourselves. It matches deadlines. It makes deadlines. It, it values hierarchy. It, it compares me to other people. Where do I stand on that hierarchy? How big is my house? What zip code do I live in? Uh, what toys do I have? Who are my friends? All of that. So mm-hmm. do you guys know that part of yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sure. Everybody knows that part. Now, I encourage people to name these four different characters because that's an identity for you. And I call my character one Helen. She's hell on wheels. She gets it done. And even my friends, (laughs) even my friends know if they call and they hear the tone of Helen's voice, they'll say, well, hello, Helen. Will you all call me back later today? You know, because Helen's busy. You know, it's like, what can I do for you? It's not like, hi, how are you? It's good to hear from you and let's chat. No, it's like, Helen's busy. What do you need? I'll make a sticky note. We'll call you back later. So give that personality a name because it's a real part of who we are. And it's a part of us that is excellent at organizing our lives and our lives in relationship to the external world. It's a wonderful part of who we are. Character number two is the emotion emotion and our alarm, alarm, alert, alert. I don't feel safe. So information streams in through the present moment consciousness. And this group of cells immediately compares it to any experience we ever had in the past to make sure that this is safe and that that I'm in the presence of is not a threat. So let's say when I was five years old, I was riding my bike and a big dog came chasing my bike, snipping at my heels. And I was terrified because I was in danger. I thought this dog was going to bite me. And so I look at the dog and I get to know what that, you know, that dog. And now 50 years later, 55 years later, every time I see a dog of that breed or that looks anything like that dog, my alarm, alarm, alert, alert goes off because in my past I had this experience and that wasn't safe. So now I just want to push away and say, no, no, no. Well, as I say no to my life and I go on automatic uh, uh, reactivity, then my world becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because I'm hooking into the fear of all my past. Now, this was a really important part of our brain when we were like, you know, living on the plains and I needed to be able to analyze every little thing. And There are different kinds of predators in today's world, but the automatic reactivity of I don't feel safe and I'm going to push it away 
is is um, very uncomfortable, and it gets our anxiety. It's our desire to escape. And there's actually tissue inside of that group of cells that is our ability to crave. So if I, if my drug of choice is alcohol and I can actually crave, I feel that craving, you know what that feels like? Well, that's a group of cells inside of that little character too saying, I'd like to have a drink right now. My anxiety's high. I want to have a drink. It'll calm me down. It'll take me out of this reality. I'll make me feel better. And so that's what that little conversation starts going on inside of that little character too. Do you know that part of yourself, fellas? Too well. (laughs) Too well. Exactly. Too well. And then the question is, you know, which of those or of the other two do we actually give the microphone to? We as human beings in our society, we're not comfortable sitting inside of discomfort or pain. And, um, uh, and, and it's just cells inside of our, our, it's cells inside of our brain. And from the moment we think a thought like, oh my God, I'm, I'd like to have, I'd like to have a drink to the feeling, the emotional, oh, I remember the reward. I know what it will feel like to get that. And then I have a physiological response to what I'm thinking and feeling. That whole cycle takes less than 90 seconds. So I encourage people, when you feel craving, enjoy the experience of the craving. This is craving. Label it. This is craving. This is interesting. I can, with my curiosity of my right hemisphere, which we'll talk about, with those characters, we can observe what does it feel like in my body when I feel it craving. And it's actually really amazing that I'm alive and capable of having this feeling. That doesn't mean I have to run the next pattern, the next circuit that says, I'm going to go and do everything I need to do in order to set myself in order to get my fix for whatever that is that I'm craving. It allows me to kind of break the circuit and observe it instead of run on automatic and engage in that urge. It's very exciting in there. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, So, so instead of looking at ourselves from the top down, this is, this are the brain cells. Let's look and see what's actually causing my behavior and what choices then do I have to, uh, to observe and engage with that in a different way, allowing it to dissipate its pain and its power. It's amazing. So character one, character two, character one left thinking, character two, left emotion. Character three and four are in the present moment. They're right here, right now in the present moment. And although I may be running a circuit from my past in that craving, I have the ability in the present moment to observe this experience, think, wow, isn't that interesting? Because the present moment is a place for curiosity and everything is interesting and exciting. And it's also experiential. So it knows very well what is it going to feel like once I engage, let's say it's alcohol, and I drink again. Well, part of me is going to be numbed and I'm going to have that fixed to that character too. But character three, character one is going to say, oh, that was not a good idea. We didn't set ourselves up for success. And then character four, which is our collective consciousness is saying, you know, that was one choice. We could have made a different choice. And the different choice we could have made was listening to all four of the characters in what I call a brain huddle. 
And when I have a desire or I have a craving or I'm just happy or I'm just doing whatever, I can call what I call a brain huddle. And the brain huddle is when I bring that committee back online and they're all present in the present moment and we make a better decision because all four of us are engaged in the conversation. We're not just giving the microphone to that very loud, unhappy, disturbed little character too that wants to respond and be reactive to that craving experience. So we have so much more power over what's going on inside of our brains than we've ever been trained. And by thinking about the brain and the anatomy, the anatomy of choice, oh my gosh, the anatomy of choice at the level of my brain. And I can hook into my character one. I can hook into my character four. And that's actually what is going on with the 12 steps program. Is it pretty much outlined step by step a way of getting the power out of that little character two and allowing us to become more expansive? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, I'm digesting all that because that's really incredible. And I loved the way you, um, and this is why anybody listening that's, uh, they should absolutely pick up this book because even just for the way you broke down in the book, the 12 steps and what each step, um, informed or how each character informed, uh, the experience of that step. So exactly. even from experiencing, um, you know, the surrender to a higher power, well, there's a, there's a part of our brain that is actually, uh, has that capacity. Um, and, and it informs that and, and you, you outline in the 12 steps, uh, portion of that chapter, the way, uh, this conversation can happen and begin to feel natural. Do people, do people begin to adopt this, Dr. Jill, and and realize that I am applying? I can apply this to any aspect of, of my life. My social anxiety. My, you know, I'm going to eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's at ten thirty at night. I'm, you know, whatever exactly. it is. I mean, assuming whatever I it do is. That. <laughs> <laughs> yes, call me. Call me next time. I, sadly, I'll probably join you in that instead of discourage you because I've yeah. got that part of my brain too. But you're yeah. absolutely right. You know, the beauty of this material in, in my, my opinion is that this is the anatomy of our brain. And it's the first time anybody has uh, shifted the paradigm. There's a lot of neuroanatomy and a lot of neuroscience and uh, neuroplasticity and neurogenesis and a whole bunch of neuro. And there's a whole lot of psychology. But what this does is it says, let's take the psychology of what we are and apply it to the anatomy of the brain. What do we know that is true at the level of the brain? And we know that the left hemisphere takes that information and instantly gives us a past and a future. So by definition, it is stepping out of the consciousness of the present moment. Well, in our society, we have skewed so much to the values of that character one thinking part of ourselves that is interested in conforming to the external world. How do I fit into the hierarchy becomes more important than and who am I as a human being? What are my natural skills and gifts? And how do I magnify and really use what I am naturally and exude that into the world using my left brain in order to get me there? 
And then there's Mm -hmm. that little character, too, that gets all hooked up into, well, I'm not this enough or I'm not that enough. So I'm not worthy enough or I I'm not good enough or my rhyme isn't good enough or 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 whatever it is that I'm not because it's pushing away. It's always looking for the reason to push away. And it comes in with a preconceived notion about what it wants because it's related to the past and the future. So it comes in and it says, well, I want to be a great, uh, a great Nashville singer songwriter. And that's my goal. And so, but then all the feedback that I get from the external world that, well, Jill, you might want to get a little better on the guitar. You might want to do some vocals and, you know, get some lessons on that. Maybe, maybe you should be back up instead of center stage or whatever it is. The messaging that my little character too gets bottom line is I'm not good enough. And it can look like all these other packages, but the bottom line is I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. And a drink will make me feel better because I have this craving in order to gain something that I don't have. And the problem with that left brain, if we structure completely from the value structure of that left brain is when is enough enough? the next amount. It's never, what I have is never enough. That left brain is always looking for the next thing. So there's never any personal, real gratitude and uh, satisfaction. The right brain is going, I'm big as the universe. Wow. Oh my gosh, I exist at all. And wow, my brain likes to think in rhyme. And wow, I love to piddle on this guitar because I was professionally trained on, or not professionally, I was a child, but I was traditionally trained on a cello and a guitar. You just turn it sideways and there it is. And then it's like, (laughs) oh my, you know, three chords, you can play a hundred, you know, a hundred songs, add in F and oh my God, you can play a thousand songs. And it's like exciting and fun and interesting. And it's like, yeah, let's put, let's get together and jam in a hoot nanny with my, with my, you know, my, my pals in the neighborhood. And then we start our garage band and it's, and it's not about judgment and it's not about that little character too and what it can't do. It's about, let's have fun. Let's go back to the original reasons why we got into this field at all. And, and then character four is going, wow, you know, this is just, we are beautiful. Life is beautiful. We are connected to all that is. We experience a deep inner sense of gratitude that we exist at all. We have eyes that can see and we have legs that allow us to take ourselves wherever we want to go. And it's completely different parts of our brain having those conversations. Wow. Yeah. Wow. A completely different experience. (laughs) I mean, completely yeah. different experience. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm having some conflicting emotions, both of them positive. On the one hand, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, there's been so much talk about spirituality and mindfulness and, uh, and that those are their connections to recovery, which can just sound spooky. And so this skeptical intellectual part of myself can just discount it all as wishful Absolutely. thinking. Absolutely. And, whoa, whoa. And, alarm, alarm, not yeah. safe. Don't go there. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I understand, well, yes. I, I, yeah, and now so you're think, giving me, yeah, go ahead. Well, think about it this way. All of that, first of all, we've never laid it down in the brain before. 
Now, Carl Jung did mm-hmm. a pretty good job when you look about at the four archetypes. But in the four archetypes, one is rational and conscious, character one, but character mm-hmm. two, our emotional pain and reactivity is part of our unconscious. Character three, our experiential of the present moment is part of the unconscious. And character four, our relationship to something that is greater than we are because we are blended into that level of consciousness is also unconscious. So we have been existing in a paradigm as a society where we have a left rational Mm -hmm. brain, character one, and everything else is unconscious. And so that part of the society that dominated more in the spirituality of it named mm-hmm. it spirituality. And there's colors that go with them. There's an energy that goes with them. There's a, fr- uh, a flow. Uh, they use language in a certain way. They have special music that goes with them. And they've claimed that they exist because they do exist. But now that we can put it into the brain, we can say, okay, well, those people are the individuals who they spend most of their time in there. And to them, that's what it feels like. That's what it sounds like. That's what it looks like. And this is what they do. And so the left brain looks at them and goes, oh, they're scary. I don't like that. That's different from me. That feels unsafe. So our little character too looks at the judgment of our left brain and says, I don't like that. That's woo-woo. That's spiritual. That's, that's something that I don't, I can't relate to. And so that's all it is. And what I'm saying is there is no bridge between, well, there is a bridge and it's called the corpus callosum, which is some 300 million axonal fibers between the two hemispheres. We all have these four different characters. We just need to bring them all into balance. And if you're not comfortable looking at that group and saying with that language, then don't get hung up there. Don't let your left hemisphere judge yourself out of your own sense of being in the present moment and being as big as the universe. And I do think that that's probably the most powerful part of this book is that it takes everything and it puts it inside of the brain. And if we own our own brain and we own the power of our own choices, we will make better choices. So don't confuse that something that you don't like is something you can't tap into. And maybe you will never want to go and meditate on a hillside with a guru and that's okay. But that does not mean that you don't have that group of cells inside of your own brain that allows you to experience that that peaceful and blissful euphoria of knowing you are connected to a consciousness that exudes everywhere. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. What well, there's been, uh, this has been, this kind of been kind of a weird moment. I, I don't know how, uh, according to the clock I have on my screen, you've been talking for 40 minutes. It seems like 10. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because I feel like you know, we're just getting into the good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Let's do it again and go yeah. deep. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. You absolutely are a repeat offender here. We're going to get you back. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. 
I love that. You know, this, and that's the beauty of it is the better we understand our own brain, it's like, oh my gosh, we can relax. And the anxiety that we experience to know that that's a group of cells and it's real and we can observe it and we can know it can really going to run a cycle of 90 seconds, just like that craving. But, you know, I know you're saying, well, I can crave for a whole lot longer than 90 seconds, Dr. Jill. (laughs) (laughs) That's because you're rethinking the thought that's re-stimulating that emotional craving circuit. And, And nothing likes to feel denied in the human body. We don't like to deny mm. ourselves. So, you know, the it becomes a negotiation of the committee inside of the head. And it becomes, what am I saying yes to? Well, what I'm saying yes to is my character one. So I can be more functional in the external world and I can respect my relationships. And my character three, I'm saying yes to my ability to experience true joy, unabandoned laughing and, and connection to what is and the value of what I am as a living being. And I'm saying yes to the fact that I am filled with gratitude that I am alive and I have this magnificent brain and I want to protect these cells with every choice I make. And I have the power to make that choice. And the beauty of these of a program like, like AA is that if I I can hook my four characters into your four characters because I got a sponsor who's going to haul me back out of my little character two and remind me of all the reasons why in my character one, three, and four and help me move beyond that circuit. And the thing about circuits is it's just a group of cells inside of the brain. So once we stop running that circuit, the less power it gets. And then the more, I mean, I, I was a cigarette smoker for till I was like uh, 30. And I'm 30 years later, I will still in my dreams be smoking a cigarette. And the thing about my smoking is that I'll smoke that whole pack as quickly as I can because that craving is still ingrained in my brain. But fortunately, my brain does know the difference between when I'm awake and when I'm asleep. And I'm not doing it while I'm awake. And I only have that, you know, maybe once every two or three years. But the craving, it is ingrained in our brain. And Mm -hmm. that's why alcoholism or other addictions, we never become not an addict. We become an addict that is not engaging in our disease because it's always there wanting and encouraging uh, us to do that. So when we look at it that way and we see, okay, well, I see that menthol in my brain and it's like, yeah, that was, see, see, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that menthol, man, it just opened up my sinuses. You know, I'll have that forever. And so mm-hmm. I can't go back and smoke one menthol cigarette. I can't do it because, and I don't want to do it. And now I'm far enough away from it that I, I know all the reasons why, and I have the power in my other characters to say, Jill, okay, maybe every few years in a dream, you're going to remember that menthol hit, but otherwise there's so much else. Take the energy out of that circuit and put it in other positive habits that we can create. Yeah. Oh, wow. Saying yes. I, I, of the most beautiful description of positive sobriety I have ever heard. 
Well, I, I hate to bring the conversation to an end, but I can't think of a better way to end it. Dr. Jill, thank you so much for joining us Absolutely. on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And we're going to hold you to that offer to return. Uh, watch the inbox. We're, we'd love to have you back for a deeper uh, dive into all this material. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. First of all, congratulations on where you are in your own positive sobriety. And wow, you know, there's so many reasons and so many beautiful, you know, it's a beautiful brain. And how do we how do we nurture it so that we can actually get it to give us our best? Thank yeah. you. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. All right, listeners, stay with us. We'll be back in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And uh, Nate, I'm, I, I mean, I just experienced this uh, in real time. And I think I'm going to have to listen to the podcast about three times <laughs> to get the full breadth of what Dr. Jill is talking about. I, I mean, I really commend this book um, to our listeners because she applies these characters and, and I just love the concept of the anatomy of choice. Um, you know, I love when we can attach, uh, physiology to things that we very often dismiss as just, you know, uh, some kind of experiential, uh, right. Confection. Hypothetical, theoretical. Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. No, nope. she ties it down to actual anatomy in a way that that really makes sense and gives more substance to the conversations we've been having for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, I and I love that in the way she frames it, sobriety is a yes conversation, not a no conversation. Right. That 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 we resist. Uh, resistance. We, uh, nobody wants to be turned down. And it's mm-hmm. learning to say yes to uh, what all four characters of the brain want in order to bring about a positive uh, a, a result. Just right. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. 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 I, um, I would love, love for people to read the chapter where she applies the four characters to the 12 steps. I, I mean, I think that was just like genius to me. So for some Mm -hmm. reason, but it it brings, because when I first went to AA, uh, I, I would hear people talking about the committee and I thought, you know, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard. Uh, except that <laughs> I then quickly realized that I have exactly that in my head. Yeah. 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 Know? Yeah. Yeah. But that there is actually, uh, the way my brain is, is hardwired a committee in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, this, this actually brought validity to something that I thought was kind of just a, uh, you know, a one figure of our of speech figures of speech, one of our 12 step cliches or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. I, I so appreciate her work and her her tenacity to overcome what she has to be where she is again. So uh, just kudos to Doctor Jill. So, all right. Well, before we wrap this one, please do remind us, David, about our sponsor. Yeah, BetterHelp.com is our sponsor, and we love to hear uh, how your um, taking advantage of some of the things that we offer and how they're impacting you. But we uh, can definitely track that. If you go to betterhelp.com 
slash positive sobriety. Uh, you'll receive a, about a 10% discount on your initial sign up. And we get to hear that um, what we're offering our listeners is um, is a benefit. And BetterHelp is simply therapy online. You're going to have a licensed therapist. Um, you're going to be able to log in and set your times, your appointments, but never really have to leave your home or the comfort of wherever it is that you feel uh, safe talking. And uh, it's a great way to address all the things that we're stuck in our lives about. They are uh, there to address your anxiety, depression, uh, relational issues, LGBTQ issues, anything that is something in your world that you are um, working to reconcile and integrate. BetterHelp.com slash positive sobriety is your opportunity to do that. All right. And we also love to hear from you uh, via email. You can reach us at positive sobriety podcast at gmail.com. Any feedback about this show or suggestions for others, we value every letter we receive. Well, that does it for this week. Until next week, when we have another great guest on tap, uh, I'm Nate. I'm David. And we are your pals on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. The Positive Sobriety Podcast is recorded at Crossroads for the Nations in Brentwood, Tennessee. Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 